family. It's good to see you. And uh, man, if you're visiting with us, we're really glad to have you here. Thank you for being here. If you visited last week and you came back, man, it's awesome. We don't take that for granted around here. Like sometimes there's like shucks. I don't know. Maybe not, but you came back. So thanks. We really appreciate that. We're, we're glad to have you with us as well. Let me pray and uh, we'll get right down to work this morning. Father, you are so kind to us in so many ways, uh, beyond 10,000 reasons for us to be glad, but you know our tendency. You know we have hearts that tend to worship the gifts that you have given us rather than you as the gift giver. We have hearts that run hard after those good things. We have hearts that are bitter when we don't get them. We complain. We have hearts that just focus on those gifts rather than allowing those good gifts to turn our hearts back to you like they're designed to do. And Father, I pray that you would rescue us of that tendency this morning, that you would, you would use all of the good things, all of your kindness that you have given every one of us here this morning to turn our hearts back to you in gratitude and praise. Uh, Father, it's what we're created for. So please rescue from our own tendency to worship lesser good things and turn them into ultimate things. We, we want to worship you and you alone, Father. Thank you for bringing us here. Please have your way. Uh, with us, Father, give us your spirit to teach us, to soften our hearts, and to convict us, to encourage us, to change us uh, where we need the gospel to shape us more. And we pray that you do that for us this morning by your grace and through your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are in the home stretch of our current sermon series entitled Seven Letters. Our goal in this series has been to learn more about who God made us to be as his church and how he calls us to live together as his family and to press into what we learn. That's, that's key. We don't want to just learn more. We really want to press into what we're learning uh, from the word as it relates to who we are and how we're to live. And we've been asking and answering this simple question of our church, who are we? What we're learning is we are a family of missionary servants learning to live everyday life with gospel power and purpose. We are ordinary people learning to live with gospel intentionality, sent as disciples who make disciples. So that's a great summary statement of who Jesus says that we are and calls us to be. It's, it's the kind of family that we want to be. It's our desire. We want those words to be true of us. But stenciling them on our wall does not magically make them come true of us. Reading them every week does not make them come true. We can't just snap our fingers and be that. We have to believe those words are right and true. We have to own those words corporately as a family and personally, like individually. We need to work towards them and learn and pray for it to be true and be humble enough to recognize that I need to change. Like John Ransom needs to grow and change for that to be increasingly true of myself and our church family. None of us have arrived. In one sense, it is already who we are. Our father adopts us in and Jesus says, all right, John, you're my son now. Um, Jack, you're my son. Taylor, you're my son. Ladies, you're my daughters. This is who you are. But this is our family growth chart. Like you're, you're way down here, little boy. Like you're just a little 
guy right now. And this is what it looks like to grow up into a mature follower of Jesus right here. So we are standing at the growth chart. There it is. But we're down, like we're down low. And our big brothers, our big sisters, we got like tack marks up there where they are. And that's what we're growing into. So we already are that. But we're also growing into that reality by God's grace and through the work of the Spirit. But what if, what if, God forbid... At some point in the life of our family, those words were not true of us at all. They were just a lie. Like those words right there on that, that wall, what if they were just a lie? Sadly, that's what we'll see going on in our passage today. The church addressed in this portion of Jesus' letter to the seven churches was located in the city of Sardis. And the church in Sardis had a great statement like that one stenciled on their wall too. Or maybe etched with rock or something. I don't know. But it was a lie. It was a lie. It didn't matter what they had painted on the walls. It was a lie. The church in Sardis was dead. Today we're going to learn this. Jesus sees past our reputation to what is real about us, calling dead churches back to life, warning of judgment, but offering mercy to those who hear. Uh, let me just let me show you where that's coming from so you don't think I'm making something up. It's in Revelation 3, beginning in verse 1 down to verse 6. Let me read it out loud, and then we'll unpack it together. Jesus said, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up! And strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete or growing or maturing in the sight of my God. Remember then, remember what you received, the gospel, and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet, yet. Even though your church is dead, you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father. That's, I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So let's take the first part of that statement and start there. Jesus sees past reputation to what is real. In verse 1, we heard Jesus say, You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Jesus said to the church in Sardis, Yo, you're dead. You are dead. I mean, that's not good when Jesus, like other people say that about you. When Jesus himself looks at you in the eye and says, you're dead, like, that's just not good. When Jesus pronounces you dead, you're dead. Like, you're flatlined. Family, churches can die. Churches do die. They die all the time. In fact, while reports vary, the numbers vary, um, studies do show that somewhere between six to 10,000 churches in our culture in the States, in the, in, in the West, die every year. Six to 10,000 churches close their doors every year. But get this, Jesus is not talking about a church that is obviously dead because its doors are closed, never to be reopened. Jesus here is actually talking about a church. He's talking about, about a church that is dead, even while the doors remain wide open. In fact, the doors aren't just open in Sardis. This church has a reputation for being alive. It's a life, seemingly a life-giving place. They've got energy. 
They're growing. There's a room full of people. There's a lot of people. They're young. They're vibrant. Maybe they had two services on a Sunday morning. You could pick nine or 11. That's them. Maybe they gathered in a, in a cool, renovated liquor store underneath a boobies tattoo Sardis edition, like the first generation. Like, man, so alive. They're just, they're, 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 they're that church. But Jesus looks them in the eye and says, no, you're, you're dead. You are a dead church. That's sobering, guys. Jesus sees past reputation to what is real. The word reputation in verse one literally means your name. Like that's what the word means, reputation, name. It's a one, it's a one for one. So Jesus is saying to them, hey, hey, church and Sardis, you've got a great church name. In fact, it's Life Church, right? That was their reputation of being alive. So let's just call it that. They are Life Church. That's your reputation, Jesus says, but I know your works. Like I know the truth about you. I know your real name and underneath the surface, while it's not on the sign out front and it's definitely not in your URL, your real name is Dead Church. Church of the Living Dead, however you want to phrase that. Dead Church, you're not alive. Now, this is kind of crazy to me, especially with how trendy it is in the world of church planting to give your church a name that is really catchy, right? We're a church plant. We're young. We're not even four years old yet. But it's really, trend, it's really trendy to get a name that's just cult, uh, catchy, right, for, for a young church. And we don't name churches like we used to. Back in the day, in our parents' and grandparents' generation, we were just basically the church of whatever town or city we existed in, right? So you had Smithville Methodist, Jamesville Presbyterian, Rutland Congregational, wherever you grew up, or in our case, Gate 2 Church. Like, why aren't we just Gate 2 Church? We're too cool for that. <clears throat> We're Pillar Church. We are, the, we are the pillar of the community church, right? Pillar Church. That's just trendy. Um, we actually have a Bible verse where we got that name from, but still, nonetheless, like, <laughs> Pillar, and that's what you do. You're like, well, we got a verse for that. Like, it's really rooted in, in the Bible. Pillar Church, or depending on where you come from, Life Point, Cross Point, Grace Point, North Point, add an E, and you're even cooler, right? North Point with an E, Grace Point with an E. Life Church, Real Life Church, New Life, Journey, Bridge, Village, Foundry, Mosaic, Generation, Impact, Potential, Epic. Uh, true story, when we planted a church in Oceanside, California, uh, right outside of Pendleton, we were given a trailer. We set up and tore down in a school every, every week. So we were given a a tow-behind trailer, like a really nice trailer to go behind a pickup truck, full of every piece of gear you would need for a church. Chairs, sound system, kids' gear, you name it, it was in the trailer. The gear came from a failed church plant. Do you know what the name of the failed church plant was? Epic Church. So we chuckle a little bit, and that's okay, it's been years now, but the irony of that, the sad irony, epic, transformation, renovation, innovate, new hope, new song, elevate, vertical, summit, frontline, rock, resolved, restored, hillsong, compass, reality, or Latin for the win, right? Because the best churches have Latin names. A friend of mine, yes, a friend, <laughs> a friend of mine planted a church in, uh, back where, where I come from by the name of Subterra. What's that mean? Under earth. There's Bible verse for that too. Subterra, right? Or one of our own partner churches, Veritas. Truth? The truth? Right, all right. So you know you're at a life-giving church when you're rocking a Latin name like that. 
Guys, what this letter is telling us is Jesus sees past reputation to what is real. He sees past our given, self-appointed, epic names. He sees what is real about us regardless of the given name of our church. And it's not just about the name, guys. We categorize churches as alive or dead as life-giving, or oh, there's no life there, like I'm not feeling it. Not just, like, really the name doesn't even have anything to do with it, but based on all kinds of our preferences. Here are a couple of examples. Some of you want a progressive church, or you come from a progressive church. Man, oh, this progressive church is just really, they're open-minded. They're politically informed. They're edgy. They're questioning. They don't make too many absolute statements and drive millennials away. Like, we ask questions about things. Um, we're self-aware and we're, we're socially engaged. We are progressive. It's alive. Or, like, oh, that's weird, John. I don't want to go to that church. Um, most of you want to go to the, uh, the relevant church, though. Maybe not progressive, but relevant. Man, this church is so relevant. The pastor really gets me when he talks. It really gets me. His TED Talks are fantastic. Hey, and just aside real quick, Facebook is so great. And people move here and they ask about churches and the threads that develop are so great. And a couple of weeks ago, there was somebody um, <clears throat> who said, man, we went to Pillar once. And it's like the pastor is like, it was just this TED Talk. And so we left and we're not going back. And I'm like, dude, that was one of my life goals. I've always wanted to give a <laughs> TED Talk. So win, thank you for that. Thank, thank you. Um, TED Talks. Look at his fashion. Our pastor's so fashionable. Obviously, present company not, not included. Um, the music really moves me. I love the environment that we have. It's life-giving. I mean, look at this reclaimed lumber. And look at all the, fl look at the flannel. I see flannel again in this hour, just like the first service. So much flannel in this room. Like, we just get culture here. We set culture here. We're so relevant, clearly we're alive. Now, some of you don't come from either a progressive or a relevant background. In fact, you would kind of turn your nose up. You would, you would see some of that even as compromise. You want tradition. Life is found in a traditional church. Give me the traditional church. I need hymns and a piano. I want pews with orange, gotta be orange carpet. That's what I come from. Uh, the King James, if it's not the King James, I don't want it. We need three-piece suits. I mean, you wear your best to go to work. You wear your best to get a job and, and go to a meeting. Why in the world would you not wear your best for? Why do you dress down for God? You want flags flanking the stage. Tradition. The tradition, that church is, there's, there is life in tradition. Jesus sees past reputation. Jesus sees past cultural categories that we construct. Jesus sees past our personal preferences, which, can we just be honest for a minute, none of those things I just read off are rooted in Scripture. Not that any one of them are inherently bad. They're cultural expressions, but they're not authoritative. Jesus sees past those personal preferences to what is real. Jesus is not impressed with any of that. Jesus is not even impressed with our fair trade organically sourced coffee. And I like our fair trade organically sourced coffee. He's not impressed with your progressivism or your, it's not a word, but your relevantism. Just not impressed. Jesus is not impressed with your traditionalism. None of these, guys, none of those, none of them are biblical indicators of a church being alive or dead. None of them. 
None of those things have anything to do with whether or not a church is particularly gospel healthy or not. Now, the church in Sardis is dead, like just flatlined, and so it it needs honesty. It's going to get that from Jesus in this letter. It needs clarity. It needs a pathway forward from death to life. Going to get that in this letter. Uh, it needs help. It, it, it doesn't just need to be told that it's dead. It needs power to be able to move from death to life. Uh, we're going to get that from Jesus in this letter. It needs a ton of mercy. Jesus thankfully gives that too for those of us who are dead or dying. And that's why the letter begins the way that it does. Jesus is reintroduced. Remember, he's, re- he's introduced in each letter differently based on the needs of the church. So here's a dead church, and Jesus is introduced as the one who has the seven spirits. So some people think the seven spirits are simply seven spiritual beings who serve God somehow. It could be, just like these random seven spiritual beings, possibly. But I don't, I don't think that's the case, in part because Jesus has way more than seven spirits serving him in that sense. Jesus is served by a host of spiritual beings, not just seven. Some people think the seven spirits here refer to the seven angels or the messengers that we've been reading about who serve Jesus by serving these seven specific churches mentioned in this letter. But I don't think that's who these seven spirits are either because Jesus is actually about to introduce them in a different way. So that's not what's going on here. I think the phrase, the seven spirits, is one way of referring to God, the Holy Spirit, the one true, the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, in the book of Revelation. In fact, I think what's happening is when John gets glimpses of the Spirit in the visions that he has in this, in this book, and he tries to communicate them to us, he has just no way to communicate what he sees. In fact, invoking the number seven, especially throughout Scripture, especially in the book of Revelation, seven is all about what? Completion, perfection, just absolute beauty, absolute power. To me, it makes sense that John is speaking to us about the Spirit. He's got no other way to, to explain. Like, I'm just looking at perfection right now. I'm work, looking at completion. That's it. I'm looking at uh, complete and perfect power and strength and life and beauty of the Spirit, and he's nearly indescribable, so I'm just going to say it this way, like, like seven. He's just, he's just perfect. So Jesus is the one who has the Spirit. Jesus is the one who gives us his Spirit. And so we have to ask the question, why is that introduction good news for a dead church? It's good news because the work of the Spirit is their only hope of regaining life. Guys, the work of the Spirit is your only hope of regaining life. When the Spirit of God brings his, he's a person. When he shows up, when he's sent by the Father, sent by the Son for our good, when he brings his perfection and power and strength and life and beauty and joy and wisdom to bear on the life of our church or on your life, you will be alive. We will be alive, fully alive. I mean, that's why Jesus says in the Gospels, I love, this is one of my favorite statements that Jesus makes. He says, it's clear as, as day. He says, the spirit gives life, period. The flesh your flesh, you, we, anything we do, our trends, our categories, our preferences, your flannel, the environment, the music, whatever, those things, he says, the flesh is of no help at all. The spirit gives life. The flesh is no help at all. <laughs> no help at all, guys. That's, I mean, that's, he's saying it as straight as he can. So forget your trendy name. Forget your environments. You want a church? Forget your traditionalism. You want a church that is truly alive? You need the spirit. You want to know life as a follower of Jesus and have a, like, you're just, your soul is alive? You need the Spirit. So even though this church is not being commended for anything good in this letter, nothing, the letter actually begins with some profound encouragement. 
And Jesus is also introduced as the one who has the seven stars. And we learned in chapter one that the seven stars represent the seven angels or spiritual beings who serve Jesus by serving or representing specific churches. So this is just reminding us that, okay, Pillar Church has, there is, a, there is an angel or a messenger or a spiritual being that serves Jesus by serving this church. And we don't understand how that all works. But what Jesus is saying is, I have that spirit. Like, he's mine. You're mine. Everything about you is mine. This is the reminder. We belong to Jesus in every way. The church is his. And so since we're his, he defines what it means to be healthy. He defines life. What he says about our church is the final word. There's no room for us to be like, oh, yeah, but Jesus, did you consider like this about us? Like, I know this is kind of a serious assessment, but this, this, this. No. The church is Jesus. He loves her more than we do. He's more committed to her than we are. He has given her a mission. It's not for us to redefine or reinvent or recontextualize based on where we live. It's all his. And this is also good news for a dying or dead church or a dying or dead Christian. Because here's the question. Do you want to be alive again? Then run back to Jesus, repent, ask him for help, embrace his kind kingly rule, submit to the authority of his word, pursue him. That's what Jesus says. Seek my kingdom first and what? All of these other things, they're going to be added to you. I take care of life. I take care of the rest. I give you life through my spirit and I am merciful to you. Whether you're a dead or dying church or a dead or dying Christian, you repent and come back to me. I'm going to give you mercy. That's good news for us. So Jesus sees past our reputation. He sees past our name, pillar. He sees past it all. He sees what's true about us. And this merciful Jesus calls dead churches back to life. That's what we see in verses two to three. He says, wake up. Those words, wake up, are actually better translated, show yourself to be watchful again. That's, that's the idea in that, that word. Like they had stopped being watchful, spiritually watchful over the condition of their heart, uh, the condition of the heart of their church. Like they just stopped paying attention. So Jesus says, show yourself to be watchful again, strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard Keep it and repent. Guys, Jesus calls dead churches back to life. Why doesn't he just shut them down? Jesus calls dead Christians back to life, dying Christians back to life all the time. Why that mercy? We don't deserve it. Why? It's crazy. The church in Sardis was as good as dead. She was done, but Jesus was not done with her. In fact, Jesus goes all Lazarus on the church in Sardis. Remember when Jesus called Lazarus from the grave? Remember? He was so dead, he stunk. His flesh was already rotting. Guys, there are some churches that are so dead, they stink. Their flesh is already rotting, as it were. But Jesus, in his mercy, calls out. He says, Lazarus, come forth. Pillar, come forth. Fill in the blank. Come forth. I'm not going to pick on anybody else. And what happened when Jesus said those words? Lazarus came forth. Dead, now alive, from death to life, from defeated to victory. He came back fully alive. And that's what Jesus offers dying and dead churches, guys. That's what Jesus offers dying and dead followers of Jesus. We don't have to decline. We don't have to die or stay dead. 
We don't have to stay dead. We listen to Jesus' voice and we live. So in the event we die, if all we do is reach out to Jesus' outstretched arm and listen for his voice, you will, we will regain life. Jesus calls dying and dead churches back to life. He is so merciful to us, so kind in undeserving ways. And you know what's incredible to me in this paragraph? Did you see where Jesus says, strengthen what remains? Remember, this church is basically dead, right? It's just bad. It stinks. It's really bad. But what does Jesus see in her? In all this mess, in all this death, in all the stench of a dying church, he sees something good about her, something redemptive, something beautiful that can be restored. That's incredible. He still sees the one or two good things about her. Guys, what would our church be like if we looked at it in the way Jesus does? But if you're like me, we tend to see all that is wrong. We see all that is wrong, and that's what we focus on. Jesus is honest about what's wrong. Don't, for sure, he's honest about what's wrong. He speaks honestly and full of grace about it, but he still sees what is good. So imagine if we thought about our church that way. Imagine if we approached each other like that. How life-giving would that be in your relationships, in your marriage, in whatever relationship, if we looked at each other and looked at our own church the way that Jesus does. It's life-giving. So Jesus calls this dead church back to life. And what we see here in verses two and three is we see a diagnosis and a remedy, right? We see G- Jesus is gonna diagnose why the church is dead. But in the diagnosis, there's a remedy of how the church can be restored to life. They're mixed together. In other words, the same words which explain why the church is dead also explain how she can find her way back to life. And we saw the five specific statements or commands. Here they are, just in case you didn't catch them while we read. Be watchful, be strengthening, be remembering, be keeping, and be repenting. Be watchful, be strengthening, be remembering, be keeping, and be repenting. So let's start with be watchful. The church in Sardis had died because she was proud, okay? Here's the root. The church was proud, and in her pride, she thought she was invincible as a church. And in that false sense of invincibility, the church let her guard down and failed to pay close attention to her heart, her health, and her vitality. We all do this. If we're progressive, our confidence is in our progressivism. We'll never fail. We're progressive. If it's in being relevant, there's our confidence. Like, we are culturally relevant. How will we ever fall? If you're a traditionalist, we we stand on our tradition, and, and we say to ourselves, look at how we cling to the truth while everyone else falls away. We'll never fail. We all do this. And that's what's going on in Sardis. It's, it's pride. And so she started out as a good, healthy church. All seven of these churches in Revelation did. They were planted. They were healthy. They were growing. Um, it was a good and beautiful thing. And the problem is she thought she would just naturally always be a good and healthy church. But you've all lived long enough to know that's not how life works. Your relationships don't work that way. Your marriages don't. Your workplace, organizations, churches... Beauty and life and life-giving stuff doesn't just happen on its own, right? It takes real work. People who lived in Sardis, man, they knew something about this dynamic from their own history. As a city, at least twice in the history of Sardis, actually it's more like five times, they believed themselves to be invincible. They let their guard down. And while their guard was down, an enemy snuck in and conquered their city. Here's just one example of, 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 of how that happened. In 549 BC, a young and cocky king, because those two things normally go together, 
um, by the name of Croesus. You can read about this in your history books. He attacked Cyrus, the king of Persia. We actually learned about Cyrus not too long ago in one of our series. Cyrus was the wise commanding field general. He was a beast on the battlefield, and Cyrus absolutely crushed Croesus on the battlefield, mopped the floor with Croesus and his boys. So Croesus retreats back to his home city of Sardis for protection because he knew he'd be safe if he could just reach the city because Sardis had an acropolis or a fort, if you will, built high on the northern spur of Mount Tmolus. Here are a couple pictures. The citadel was nearly, like, look at that. The citadel was up there, and it was surrounded nearly by perpendicular rock face rising 1,500 feet. The citadel at Sardis was thought by the entire known world to be impenetrable. Never going to defeat this fort. So Croesus makes it inside the fort. He shuts the doors. He gives a safety brief, and he puts everyone on a 96. It's like, we don't even need fire watch, like no watch. We're here, we're home, like we're invincible. And they let their guard down. Meanwhile, the wily old general, Cyrus, deploys one man, a single climber, who bravely scales that wall, free climbing. It's impressive, free climbing. In full battle gear, free free climbs up that rock face. He inspires the rest of the troops below, and before you know it, unobserved, an army is climbing that wall. They begin to scale and conquer what was thought to be an unscalable cliff. They make it to the top, others follow, and Cyrus's army finishes what they began on the battlefield. Guys, the city leaders and the military leaders assumed that they would never fall. They were proud, their pride led to apathy, and their apathy kept them from disciplining themselves to practice the most important, often mundane, Daily tasks, which would have led to life and health for their city. In fact, in the Greek world, the phrase capturing Sardis became a household phrase. Like kids would be saying this phrase, capturing Sardis. And and what it meant was it was a saying for achieving the impossible. Like the impossible had happened. Sardis fell. And in fact, Sardis fell just like that three to five times in their history. And we're like, the fools? Uh, fools live here. And then we step back and we're like, oh wait, like that's the story of my life too. Like I don't even learn from previous fallings. I have fallen the same way more times than I can count on both my hands. The, The impossible had happened. Guys, sadly, the impossible is achieved multiple times in the lives of churches and in the lives of individual Christians, you and me, in our confidence wherever your confidence is rooted, in your pride, in our assumption that we're good, will never fall, that will never happen to me. We let our guard down. Pride leads to apathy, and our apathy keeps us from disciplining ourselves to practice the most important, albeit mundane, daily tasks which lead to life and health for our own souls, for our families, and for our church family. Like Sardis, every church Every Christian has a never-ending stream of climbers, if you will, scaling the unscalable walls of our church family and of your heart, of your lives. There is a stream, a never-ending stream of climbers scaling those walls. And in that reality, Jesus says to us, he says to the church at Sardis, and he's saying to you this morning, wake up, 
Wake up. Show yourself to be watchful again. We guys are far too easily lulled to sleep or lullabied to our spiritual death. One of the uh, popular worship bands of the 80s and 90s, um, Metallica. Um, <laughs> hey, we are created as worshipers. We're always worshiping. We are always, we are always, our affections and allegiances are always going somewhere. I just happen to have been raised in the generation that very often worshiped through Metallica lyrics. And so, right, like, so, okay. So anyway, they have a song entitled Enter Sandman. And in that, in that song, in the lyrics, are you cringing, Jenny? I'm not singing. I won't sing, but I heard your dad would sing for us. We should make that happen. In the lyrics, they say, hush, little baby, don't say a word, and what? Never mind that noise you heard. Never mind the noise you heard. It's just the beast under your bed, in the closet, in your head. Guys, thank you, Jack. Thank you. Wait, I need to give you a microphone. The gospel calls you to mind that noise. Jesus is calling you to mind that noise you heard, to be watchful of your heart, to be watchful of the the heart, the collective heart of our church family. We've got to mind the noise. The noise is indicative that something, someone is actually there. We got to watch. We got to wake up. Like Sardis, Our hearts and the heart of our church are constantly threatened by climbers scaling the wall to overtake the city. The church in Sardis was likely lulled into apathy by their pursuit of what we'll just call the um, Sardesian dream, right? We've got the American dream. Well, they had the same thing in Sardis. It was a filthy, rich city. Guys, there was a river that ran through the middle of Sardis. Do you know what it was laced with? Straight up gold. It just... Gold floated through this river. Sardis was so rich as a city that legend had it that King Midas, you know Midas? Midas had deposited all of his gold in the springs that fed the river that ran through Sardis. That's how filthy rich they were. The other way that Sardis was likely lulled into apathy was this. They faced little to no opposition for their Christian faith. Unlike the other six Uh, churches that we read about in Revelation, it seems like they more or less existed peacefully in the culture of Sardis. Guys, on both counts, that's us. We come from the wealthiest culture in the world by global standards. And you know what Jesus said about rich people in the kingdom of God, right? It's easier for a camel to work its way through the eye of a needle than for a person who comes from a wealthy environment to find his or her way into the kingdom of God. Guys, we are Sardis. They were relatively unopposed. Guys, we're Sardis here too. Look, I know some of you get teased, ridiculed a little bit, but like by biblical and historical standards or even world standards today where where some people in certain parts of the world are still being burned alive or beheaded for their faith, we're not persecuted we're not opposed. You actually work in places now that champion diversity and like, like just we're, we're not opposed. Not really. Guys, we're Sardis. Like it's entirely possible that we have been lulled to sleep, lullabied to spiritual death in the same way that they have. We're wealthy and largely unopposed. These are two of the climbers scaling our walls, but what else? It could be moralism, 
Could be our recreation, just our constant pursuit of recreation. Could be consumerism, could be relevance, a desire to be relevant, our social status, our career, our unresolved conflicts. Uh, We could just spend the rest of the day, honestly, we could write all of the climbers on the walls around us and run out of space. There are that many climbers scaling the wall of your heart and the heart of our church family. And these climbers, they capture our affections for Jesus and they, they conquer us by overtaking our allegiances to him. Climbers destroy unity in the life of a church and in the life of a family. And so Jesus calls us to wake up, to be watchful. How do we know if we're being watchful or not? How do we know if our heart is watchful? An unwatched heart is a proud heart. It's a cold heart. It's a selfish heart. It's a confident heart like, I'm good. That's what, a, that's what an unwatched heart says. I'm good. Like, I'm, I'm not falling. Are you falling? I don't fall. On the other hand, a watched heart is humble. A watched heart is warm, not cold. Not selfish, it's selfless. Not, not, not harsh, it's, it's gentle. And a watched heart admits, man, I could fall tomorrow. I could fall right now. That's what a watched heart says. So Jesus says, show yourself to be watching. And then he says, be strengthening. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Guys, in their apathy, the church in Sardis was not pursuing Jesus. They were not spending time with him. They were not listening to his voice. They were not praying. They were not serving each other. They were not loving each other in a self-sacrificing way. They were not giving. They were not killing their own sin. They were not working to be in the culture of Sardis, but not of the culture of Sardis. They were not fighting for each other's joy. They were indifferent. They say the, the opposite of love is not hatred. It's indifference. It's just apathy. This is Sardis. And so Jesus says to them, guys, get back to work, family. Give yourself to identifying and strengthening whatever good exists in the life of the family. Look for it. Is it love? Is it mercy? Is it, what is the good thing that is here? Prop it up, support it, stand it on on its feet and fight for it. Because the church in Sardis died simply because they were not working to strengthen good in the family. And so Jesus says to us, Show yourself to be watchful, watch for the climbers, watch for the good, and be strengthening the good. And then he says, be remembering. Remember what you received and heard. He's simply talking about the gospel here. And so Jesus is saying to us and to Sardis, guys, remember, daily rehearse the gospel. The church in Sardis died because the gospel lost its place of centrality in the life of the church. We die slowly when the gospel loses its place of centrality in our hearts. It's often an unnoticed death because it's a slow fade. It's a slow, almost unseen drift until our hearts are cold and dead. And we're like, man, what what happened? Where am I? Where am I? So Jesus says... Be remembering the gospel. When we forget the gospel, when the gospel drifts from center, we forget our purpose. We fall off of Jesus' mission. Rather than living for his fame and the good of others, we live for our fame and our own good. Our hearts grow hard and our love grows cold. And Jesus says to them in Sardis, this is why you died. But this is also the pathway back. The pathway to life is giving yourself to daily rehearsing the gospel alone by yourself and in community. Guys, the gospel is blood in our veins and oxygen for our lungs. The minute you stop bleeding gospel, you, you die. The minute you stop breathing gospel, you, you, you start a slow, painful 
death. You suffocate your soul. So Jesus says, be watchful, be strengthening, be remembering the gospel, and be keeping. Keeping is a New Testament word for obeying or living. Be obeying, be living in your gospel identity and mission. Keep what you have received and heard. Keep the gospel. And so in these two short words, Jesus reminds us that it's not enough to just know the gospel. It's not enough to know the words or the message. It's not enough to rehearse the gospel. A healthy church keeps the gospel, meaning a healthy family works to practice the gospel. We work at obeying Jesus. We work at knowing the gospel, but also living the gospel. They're inseparable for a healthy church. To live in the reality of our gospel identity, we work at this. We look at each other and we say, all right, we're sons, we're daughters, we are brothers and sisters, we're forgiven, accepted, affirmed, and kept in Jesus, this is who we are, and our family is given a mission in the gospel, we don't exist for ourselves. Guys, listen, the church which exists for itself and its own comfort and its own preferences is dead already. The Christian who exists for himself and her own comfort and his own preferences is already dead. We exist for the fame of our Father and for the good of those not yet adopted in. A dead or dying church gathers to li- listen, a dead church gathers 50 times, two times a year to listen to a sermon. And fill a room and listen to a sermon. A dying church gathers to listen to the gospel preached 52 times a year. That's having a reputation of being alive. Jesus says, you're just actually dead. A living church practices the gospel 365 days a year in what we just happen to call, again, not being hung up on our own vocabulary, missional communities and fight clubs. You call them whatever you want. What we're talking about is life on life, life in community, and life in mission. Call it whatever you want, that life together as a church is far more than just gathering and receiving something 52 times a year. It's gathering and fighting together for God's fame and each other's good and living in the reality of the gospel 365 days a year. It's our life. And then Jesus says, be repenting. Repent. Daily examine your heart and your life. Ask questions like, am I being watchful? Are there climbers making it to my heart? Am I even paying attention? Am I oblivious to the fact? Am I denying the fact that there are climbers? There are climbers. They are climbing right now, trying to get into the, the heart of our church. There are climbers right now working to get to your soul and destroy you. Am I being watchful? Am I working with my family to strengthen what is good? Am I rehearsing the gospel for myself and in community? Am I living in my gospel identity? Am I pursuing Jesus' mission? Am I living like Jesus is my king? And to all of those questions, you know what I have to answer? As a messy, imperfect follower of Jesus, not really well today. I failed here. I fell short there. I kind of did this, but so imperfectly. And so daily together, we repent. We acknowledge the reality of that. And we return to Jesus and we ask him for help. That's repentance. We ask for help as we acknowledge our need and seek his mercy. Guys, these five practices are the real indicators of a church's health. Guys, these five practices are the real indicators of, a, of your health as a follower of Jesus, as a human being. 
These are the, the true indicators of health in your soul, in your spirit. A living church practices all five, imperfectly, but practices. A living Christian, an alive Christian, practices all five, imperfectly, but practices. A dying or dead church will be deficient in one or all five. But guys, here's what we need to know. All the other cultural metrics that we use to measure life or death in a church when we PCS, all those preferences, um, all those categories, the progressivism, the rel- relative and being relevant-ism, and the traditionalism. You know what? All that stuff, write it down on a piece of paper, crumple the paper up, and throw it in the trash. It means nothing. It's meaningless. These are the true metrics of life and health and vitality. Jesus sees past reputation to what is real, and he calls dead churches and dead Christians back to life. Do you hear him calling? That's what he's doing for Sardis, and that's what he's doing for us. And as he calls, Jesus warns dead churches of judgment but he also offers mercy to those who hear. So here's his warning. If you will not repent, I will come like a thief and you will not know what hour I will come against you. We're too conditioned in our modern age to be like, man, Jesus would never talk to his family like that. It has to mean something else. Guys, we just read the letter. It's from Jesus. It's to his family. Jesus talks to his family just like this when they need to hear his voice like this. And man, this would have rung in Sardis, right? Like this this is what happened to them five times in history. Somebody actually did come like a thief and bring judgment to them. So family, let's take this warning seriously. Jesus doesn't just say stuff because he likes to hear himself talk. Some of us do that. Jesus doesn't. Whenever he opens his mouth to speak, he speaks because it matters. Life and death matters to us. This warning matters to us. We are not invincible. We are not immune from falling. We are not above failing. Our health is not guaranteed. We will not effortlessly be a life-giving community. We will not effortlessly be a, a Christian that knows life and joy. And this warning reminds us that it is entirely possible that our church could slowly die. We could become proud or we have become proud. Pride could give birth to apathy. Perhaps we already have areas of apathy in our hearts. We could or already have stopped doing the little things that matter so much. And Jesus could judge us for this. He could close our doors or worse, he could allow us to carry on under the great name of Pillar Church and the illusion that we're good to go and just exist in our delusion. Thinking, man, we are, we, we, we're a life church. Let's allow this warning to motivate us to give ourselves to daily watchfulness, strengthening what is good, remembering the gospel, living in our gospel identity, living out our gospel mission and repenting. And Jesus does more than warn. He's merciful. And so he offers encouragement. He says, yet you still, ha- your, your church is so dead, but you still have a few names in Sardis. People who have not soiled their garments and they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, listen to what the spirit says to the churches. So even in this dead church, there were some who were faithfully following Jesus And Jesus refers to them as people who have not soiled their garments. Um, He also refers to them as conquerors. And these people were daily, what were they doing? They were daily watching. 
strengthening, remembering, keeping, and most importantly, repenting. Jesus says to them, but not just to them, guys. Listen, Jesus says to the church in Sardis, to any dead or dying Christian in there, to any Christian who has wandered far from him and feels dead in their soul, Jesus looks them in the eye and says, you know, I will give you mercy. I will restore your life. He says to them, To any of the dead or dying, if you repent and return, I have three promises for you. One, you will walk with me in white garments. Two, I will never blot your name out of the book of life. Three, I will confess your name before my father and his angels. You will walk with me in white garments. Now, white could symbolize victory. It did for the Romans. If they won a war or a battle, all the citizens would show up for the parade dressed in white. It was a sign of victory. Jesus says... Repentance moves you from defeat to victory. You feel defeated and you are. What is the pathway back to victory? Repentance. Repentance. And Jesus says, you will walk with me in white garments. That could also symbolize our justification. Repentance moves us from death before God to life with God. It's Jesus saying, um, I'm going to make you right. And repentance is the pathway to being made right with God. And whenever you see people in the Bible wearing white clothes as a sign of their purity, they've never dressed themselves. Jesus has dressed them in his, his clothes. He's made them right. And that's what he's saying. The pathway back to life is simply repentance. I make you right. And he says, I'm never going to blot your name out of the book of life. Did you know the book of life is God's book? Like God actually has a book. The title of that book is the book of life. And in that book are contained the names of all of his children, everyone who has ever repented and believed the gospel. And the reminder here is this, this book of life is not filled with the names of perfect people and good Christians. There is no such thing. The book of life contains the names of repenting people made perfect by the work of Jesus. And Jesus says to these repenting people, I will never let you go. Which leads to the third and final Statement, I will confess your name before my father and his angels. Man, that statement is meant to inspire deep confidence in the lives of his kids. If you know that when you stand before God the Father, Jesus is gonna be right there and your heart is doubting and you're fearful and Jesus looks into the eyes of the Father and says, it's mine, he's ours. I lived a perfect life on his behalf. I died a substitutionary death in her place. She has repented and believed. Her name is in the book of life. She's in our family. Man, for all of our weakness and failings, and that, how life-giving is that? How confident is that? But guys, here's the reality. Most of us in this room are not confident in our, in our faith, in following Jesus. We, we struggle so hard with confidence. And you can read any number of books or go to any number of churches, and you know what gonna say, they're going to say to build your confidence? Let me give you three steps to be a better Christian, to be a better wife, to be a better husband, to be, do this, strengthen yourself, prove yourself. You'll find confidence. You know how Jesus says you find confidence? You repent. You acknowledge your weakness, you acknowledge your failings, you, you cry out for help, and Jesus says, I will, every time you repent, I will show you mercy, and I will give you life through the Spirit. I will move you from death to life and from defeat to victory every time you repent. So guys, the question before the house this morning is, is there any reason in this world Is there anything that would keep us from repenting? Why in the world would we not repent and cry out to Jesus for help? The gospel's clear. 
We all need it. Experience is clear. There is so much death and dying that happens in our hearts. We are overcome by the climbers on so many days. But yet Jesus, our, our, our kind king, looks us in the eyes and says, run to me, repent, and I will meet you and give you mercy and restore your life. Because this is what we do every week as followers of Jesus. Repentance is not a one-time thing to make you a Christian, although you do need to repent initially. A true follower of Jesus makes it a daily practice of repenting and believing the gospel. This is what we do 365 times a year, day in and day out. Let's practice that together right now. Father, I am crocious. I'm proud. I'm apathetic. I, I let my guard down. I am, we are the church in Sardis. Confident in the wrong things, not in Christ. And so Jesus, together as a family, we come to you and we repent. We ask you for mercy and we ask for help confidently because we know in your kindness and your mercy, you will give it to us. Father, I wanna pray especially for those in this room who actually do feel dead. They feel like they're dying in their faith. God, I pray that by grace, by your grace and through your spirit this morning, your kindness would draw them to repentance and that they would publicly and privately confess their failing and their need for you, their pride, their apathy, their lack of watchfulness, their lack of remembering, their, their lack of working, our lack of repenting. We would repent of not repenting. And that as we utter those words by faith, every one of us would be met by your mercy and that your spirit would begin to restore our lives individually and as families and as a church family. Father, please do this for your namesake and for our good and for the good of those not yet adopted into our family. In Jesus' name, amen.